And so my mind instantly went to the book of Colossians, actually. And so if you would, uh, please open there with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And I will be reading verses 12 to 17, but the focus of our time will be verses 15 to 17. So please read with me. So, Paul writes, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and graciously forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. Above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray and commit this morning to the Lord, please. Father, we are so grateful to be here, to be doing even what this very passage talks about, Lord, worshiping you corporately. And I ask that this would be just merely an extension of that. It would be an encouragement to the hearts of your people and that it would be glorifying to your name. And I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. I've titled this message, The Corporate Melody of the Renewed Heart. The Corporate Melody of the Renewed Heart. And we're going to see in our focus text for today, Colossians three fifteen to 17, four elements of the believer's corporate heart melody that will fuel your pursuit and sanctification. Now, it's important to understand the context anytime we jump right into the middle of, a, of, a, of Scripture. And so I have to tell you at the outset that the first part of this, as I give you the context, might feel like a lot all at once, but I think it's necessary for us to see just what's going on as we arrive at our focus text for today. So just by a way of a little bit of background context, historically, uh, it's believed that the church at Colossae was founded by Epaphras, Epaphras being a ministry companion of Paul, who was likely trained in Ephesus during Paul's stay there when he was uh, building up the church there. And once trained, Epaphras went out to Colossae, which is believed to be his hometown, and planted a church. And after a certain period of time, the, the young church became endangered by what we can gather from the book of Colossians, seems to be a syncretistic mix of pagan wisdom and Jewish adherence to rules. Um, and that's what the, the false teachers that were promoting those things were saying was um, the key to curbing the fleshly indulgences. Or in other words, the key to, to being sanctified. And apparently these things had gotten bad enough, the danger had gotten bad enough, where Epaphras needed outside help. And so it's understood that Epaphras went to Paul in Rome during Paul's first imprisonment. And it was during that meeting that resulted in the letter that we have here today. Further, just literary context, now let's bring it into the letter and catch us up with where we're at in the letter. In chapter 1, Paul opens in his typical 
um, epistolary style with a, a prayer for thanksgiving for the Colossians' faith in Christ. Uh, he encourages them toward growth in the knowledge and wisdom in Christ. Um, but then kind of the crown jewel of this whole letter comes in chapter 1, when Paul, in the face of false teachers and false doctrine, rather than attacking it directly and head-on, which he, which he no doubt sees value in in other places, he does one thing throughout this entire letter, and he exalts Christ. And here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, we have what is possibly the richest expounding of the person of Christ in all of Scripture. And so I just want to read that today, just so it's in your minds. We're going to start in um, verse 12, when Paul is encouraging the Colossians. He tells them uh, to do so joyously, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Now this is where the emphasis on Christ comes in. In whom we have the redemption, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and evil in deeds, but now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Time doesn't permit me, unfortunately, to unpack everything that's in there, but know that it's there and know that it is kind of, the, like I said, the crown jewel of this entire work. He concludes chapter 1 by informing and reminding the Colossians that it was his ministry to proclaim this Christ and to, make every, to see every man complete in him. Chapter 2 focuses more or so on the preeminent provision of Christ, whereas chapter 1 focused on the preeminent person of Christ. We see in chapter 2 that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. And so Paul exhorts the Colossians in light of that not to be polluted by persuasive arguments, but instead to walk in Christ and in the instruction that they received at the outset of their faith. He exhorts them further not to be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit or an empty deception that are according to the traditions of man and the elementary principles of the world. Because all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ and it's through him that we are restored to God. And further, he closes the chapter and this is really where we see what seems to be a lot of the details of what the Colossian church was dealing with. He tells them not to get caught up in the not to get caught up in religious rule-keeping. So, because they're merely the commandments and teaching of men in chapter 2, verse 22, and they ultimately have no value. 
against the indulgence of the flesh, verse 23. And that brings us to chapter 3, where Paul shifts gears like he does in so many of his other letters. He shifts gears from talking about doctrine and an emphasis on what we need to believe, what we need to hold to, and now tells us what our duty is in light of that doctrine. And this chapter, rightfully so, is full of exhortations. He starts off saying, therefore, so in in light of everything, in light of everything, in light of you having been raised up with Christ, these are all things that we see in the first few chapters of of this first few verses of this chapter. Because you've been raised up with, or you've died with Christ, you've raised been raised with Christ, you're seated with Christ, your life is hidden with Christ, and you'll be manifested and revealed with Christ in glory. Because of those things, we're called to, do, we're called to seek and set our minds on the things of the bu- above because we are united and we are with him. We are seated at the right hand with him. We're also commanded be, in light of this reality of who we are now in Christ to put off or to put to death or to consider as dead the old man. Uh, in verses 5 to 9. And along with that command to put them off, Paul explains to us what he's referring to here. And, he's, and he gives two different lists of vices of the old man. And we're to put off sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry, wrath, anger, malice, slander, and abusive speech, and lying. These are all part of the old man, and thus these things are unable to be curbed by worldly wisdom and rule following. But they're nonetheless, these are things that we've been called to put off in light of what Christ has done. And we're further commanded to do these things, not only because it, Paul speaks in the, in the text as if we've already put off the old man, in which we have in our profession of faith, but simultaneously when we did that, when we professed faith in Christ, when we repented of our sins and turned to him in faith, We simultaneously put on the new man, and it's because of that reality as well that we are called to put these things away, to put them to death, to consider them as dead. And further, not just because we have put on the new man, but because we are being renewed into the image of the one who created us. Again, highlighting the preeminence of Christ, Christ being referred to earlier in the letter as the image, um, the image of God, the perfect image of God, um, and also as the one through whom all things were created. We're being renewed into the image of that one. And in this renewal, the end of verse 10, there's no creaturely division according to worldly wisdom or religious rule following. To believers, Christ is everything. He is preeminent. He is all, and he is in all. He is in all of us. There are no longer worldly distinctions of things such as um, politics or ethnicities or... um, economic status, but rather Christ is in all of us and unites all of us. And because of those things, we're called to put off the old man. It's not, but we never, Paul never ends there in any of his letters. It's never just stop doing these things. It's always put on virtues, as many of you know, I'm sure. And in verses 12 to 14, he gives us the virtues that he desires to be put on. Namely, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, and above all, love. Okay, now we'll slow down a little bit. Now in verses 1 to 14 of chapter 3, you might have noticed the vices that I mentioned um, and all the put-offs and the put-ons. 
had to do primarily with the heart or the inner attitudes, the internal dispositions of the believer. And I think what Paul's doing here is in the first 14 verses, he's focused on, like I said, the individual believer, the individual heart attitude. He makes a little bit of a transition here in verses 15 to 17, which flows naturally into the section that comes afterwards. In verses 15 to 17, the emphasis seems to be more on our corporate life as believers. That's why I added that one word to the title, the corporate, um, the corporate melody of the heart of believers. And in, verse, and in these three verses, verses 15 to 17, the, the Apostle Paul gives us four instructions on how to live together as a community of believers. And these verses are going to be the focus for the remainder of our time. And so just as a reminder of what I said at the outset, these instructions contain those four elements that I mentioned previously of the corporate melody of the believer's heart for growth and sanctification. And they all come in the form of exhortations. The first of these is seen in the beginning of verse 15 where Paul says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And you might ask, what exactly is the peace of Christ? The peace of Christ is the horizontal manifestation of an objective, vertical reality. Further, what do I mean by that? The peace of Christ comes to those who first have peace with God. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20 tells us that through Christ, God has chosen to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of Christ's cross, through him, whether things on earth or in heaven. And those who now have this peace with God are granted the peace of Christ that is mentioned here. And I lean on Pastor John for his uh, brief and straightforward understanding of what is the peace of Christ as it's manifested outwardly. And he describes it as the inner calm or tranquility that is promised to the believer based on unwavering confidence that God is able and willing to do what is best for his children. And that peace, Paul commands that it rule in your hearts, in our hearts as believers. Several commentators note here that this verse, or sorry, this verb was used in relation to athletic games of the day. The judge or the umpire was the one who directed and controlled the things that happened within the game. And in the same way, As believers who have been called to the one body of Christ, this peace of Christ, this outward manifestation of the vertical reality of peace with God, should be evident in all of our interactions with one another. This is the very motive that fuels um, the virtues that are mentioned. Being able to forgive one another, being able to... uh, forbear with forbear one another's sins to bear one another's burdens etc we can do these things because we have peace with god and we know that he is sovereign we know that he is working all things for the good of his church 
the peace of God is the first um, element of the heart melody of believers. Second, comes in verse 16. Paul commands here, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ, that, again, commentators say many different things about what this means, whether it be the specific words of Christ that he spoke in the Gospels or the words about Christ that we have in Scripture. Um, but I again lean on what, how Pastor John sees it, and that is that this is a reference to God's revelation in general. God's revelation the word of Christ, as it's described here, again, pointing to the Christocentric emphasis of the book of Colossians, is to permeate or to dwell in, dwell, the verb used there, um, has to do with living in or having a home within our midst. And not just merely be there, but to be there richly, to dwell there richly, lavishly, abundantly, the word of Christ must have a prominent place in the home of our hearts. But Paul tells us explicitly what he means by this, what he, how he wants this to manifest itself. And again, I wish I could spend more time on this, but to, to describe it simply, we do this through corporate worship. We do this through corporate worship. Now that might be contrary to... The, Actually, further, let me cover this verse again. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, further, with all wisdom and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We see in this verse that our corporate worship actually has two aspects to it. Number one is the common way that we often think of worship. It's Godward. We, can, we, we say all the time, we come to church and we sing praises to our Lord. And that's not wrong. But that's not the full picture according to what Paul says here and also in Ephesians 5, which Pastor Brad read earlier. There is also an aspect in which our worship, our corporate worship is a ministry to the people around us. It is a means by which God, what are the words used here? He teaches and admonishes one another. And so when you come to worship here at church, here in commission and both in the worship service or even in the Bible studies, it's not that we're coming together just merely to sing praises to God. And it is that, at the very least. And that's a glorious thing. But it's so much more. We, we worship, we sing songs that are full of the word of Christ because it's a ministry to those around us. We become the very mouthpieces of God's truth that he uses to encourage and admonish and instruct one another. The second element that's crucial for the corporate heart melody is the word of Christ and that it dwells in us richly as we gather. The third element, believers are exhorted, the third element, sorry, believers are exhorted to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. It says at the beginning of verse 17, that whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Clearly, Paul is getting at something here that's bigger even merely than the corporate setting. He now, he now widens the lens even more. All the, sorry, <laughs> whatever you do in word or deed has to do with 
an emphatic, all-encompassing reality in the life of the believer. And we're to do so in the name of the Lord Jesus. One commentator says, an explanation of what it means to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus means to do so in vital relation with him, that is, in harmony with his revealed will, in subjection to his authority, and in dependence on his power. All that we do is to be done in accordance with the nature and the person of our Lord and Savior. Further explanation of this, another commentator writes, we should so act and so speak that it would be as if Jesus himself were performing the act or speaking the word. Indeed, we must speak and act in conscious awareness of our union with Christ, cognizant of being in Christ and, being, and him being in us. In this sense is what Paul described of his own life when he said that it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved himself and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 we should do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ his person, his work should saturate all we do should influence all that we do and lastly the final element that's given in this text that is part of the heart melody of the corporate worship of the believer is thankfulness and gratitude I'm sure anybody that was reading along closely recognized that I skipped over a couple words here and there. That's because I wanted to emphasize it here at the end. It's mentioned three times in this text, all in different ways, but nonetheless, it's a clear theme, a clear thread throughout these three verses. And you'll notice in verse 15, it's mentioned first as a command. And this is a present imperative in the Greek, which means that it demands our constant and habitual action. And simply stated, be thankful. Commanded, be thankful. I recently heard of a, of a brother's meditation on thankfulness in Scripture, and he noted, now again, this is his word, not mine, so don't quote me on this, but I believe there's a lot of merit to it. He noted that thankfulness is most often in Scripture is associated with God's goodness. And just one verse that off the top of my head came to my mind. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good, right? Now think of what all God has accomplished through Christ. Thinking back to the peace of Christ in verse 15. And just to name a few things, a few of the benefits of the peace of Christ, a few of the things that God has done through Him, only from the book of Colossians, not to consider what's everywhere else in Scripture. He's qualified us for the heavenly inheritance. Chapter 1, verse 12. He's rescued us from the authority of darkness. Chapter 1, verse 13. He's transferred us to the kingdom of God's glorious Son. Chapter 1, verse 13. Our sins have been forgiven. Chapter 1, verse 14. And chapter, again in chapter 3, verse 13. We have been reconciled to God. Chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. We have access to all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 3, God has, sorry, Christ has removed our old hearts and given us new ones. Chapter 2, verses 11, we have been made alive with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 13, our sin debt has been canceled by the cross of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 14, praise God. Christ has triumphed over all our spiritual enemies. Chapter 2, verse 15, 
And lastly, we are being renewed into the image of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 10. We have an overabundance of things to be grateful for, do we not? And just as a side note, do you recognize that it's actually one of the essential qualities of the old man to have no thankfulness? I'm sure you can, can remember back to Romans chapter 1, verse 21, Paul's indictment of all humanity. He says that, for even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks. As believers, as the recipients of one of all the benefits mentioned and infinitely more, we should be thankful. And not only is this something that's, this should be a corporate reality, meaning when we come together as saints, but we see further, or sorry, not only is this a command, but it's also seen as an all-encompassing, a life-encompassing reality. We see this as a necessity in the life of corporate worship in verse, 5, verse 16, where when we come together and we sing these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we do so with gratefulness in our hearts to God. Interestingly, here in this verse, the word used for gratefulness is different than the one used in the other two verses that are next to it. Normally, the word for be thankful um, comes from the word where we get the term Eucharist. And in the Greek, it literally means in its verbal form, I give thanks. Here, though, the word is charis, which is normally translated grace. Okay? But as it is used here, it's not referring to its normal usage. It's rather referring to a response to generosity or beneficence. So in other words, it means gratefulness or thankfulness. We sing these songs with gratefulness in our hearts to God. And doesn't it, again, connect perfectly back to the word of Christ? The things that we're singing about, we're singing about what God has done. The things that we have received in Christ by God's grace. But notice that this thankfulness should not be merely compartmentalized to our corporate lives alone, corporate worship lives alone. This should be something that is infused into every aspect of our life. In verse 17, let me just read it again. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. One way to think of this is that Thanksgiving should be the accent of our lives. Now, what I mean by that, um, I'm a student in the seminary. There are a lot of brothers here, uh, as well as their wives, that are from other countries. And although they speak English, you can tell as soon as you talk to them that they're not from here. Even if English is their first language, you can tell they're not from here. Because it sounds different everywhere else. In the same way, if somebody is on the outside of your life looking in, they should be able to see in your words and in your deeds the thankfulness of God, thankfulness toward God. It should be the accent of our life. And I think thankfulness is really not just the emphasis of this text, but it's also one of the major themes of this letter. Um, it, in considerable, it's, it's, the word is used in considerable proportion in comparison to the rest of Paul's 
literature. It's seven times in this letter. Thankfulness is referred to either by Paul or encouraging the believers to be thankful. And I think it again speaks to how crucial that of an aspect it is to the life of a believer. If you just think about it, Paul in chapter 2 verse 1 and it's chapter 2 verse 1, he states that he had never been to this church yet. And so he's infusing that to make sure, commanding even, be thankful as you pursue Christ. Be thankful in your walk with him. Thankfulness is an inseparable element of the melody of the renewed heart. And so we've seen these four elements that make up this melody. They are the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, the name or the person of Christ, and thankfulness. And it is the pursuit of these, as opposed to the worldly wisdom and traditions of man, that enable one to grow in godliness. And so by way of conclusion and application, I just want to simply ask you four questions this morning, right out of the text. Do you let the peace of Christ rule in your heart? Or maybe even better asked, possibly for some in this room, do you have the peace of Christ in your heart? As I mentioned already, this is something that comes as a reality of something that God has already done. When your sins are forgiven, when you repent of your sins, you turn to Christ in faith, it is then that you experience truly the peace of God. Do you have the peace of God this morning? Philippians 4, 6, and 7 alludes to the peace of God, the peace of Christ, as something that is only for those that are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ this morning? If not, this glorious Savior as he is portrayed in, verses, in Colossians chapter 1, stands ready to forgive you of your sins. Come to him this morning. Turn to him. And you'll be saved. Second question. Do you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly? And granted, I think what Paul's getting at here is more of the corporate aspect, and we definitely do that well here at Grace. Everything, not just on Sunday mornings, but on Wednesday nights, there's things that go on on Tuesday nights, during the week, during Bible studies. The Word of God, the Word of Christ is infused into everything. We sing songs that, have, that carry these rich truths of Scripture in them so that we can be continually reminded of them. But how about individually, though? Because it's in the individual, set, it's in the individual heart that these things then become manifest corporately. Is the Word of Christ dwelling richly in your heart? Third question, do you do all things in accord with the person of Christ and for his glory? Is the impact of his work and the impact of his care for your life evident to others around you? And finally, does thankfulness characterize your life? If not, then again, you should do exactly what thankfulness is tied to here over and over again in this text, and that is, Look to Christ. Consider and meditate the things that he has done on your behalf. If you answered any of these in the, affirm, or in the negative, that's exactly what you should do. Look to Christ. Be here at church to worship with others and when the saints gather.